Dear Romance Besties, this season we will be exploring dark romance. That means I need to give y'all a little trigger warning. We are going to be reading books where consent is murky at best. There will be triggering topics of psychological and physical abuse, manipulation, kidnapping, slavery, rape, bullying, bodice ripping, and sexual assault on the page. If this is not your cup of tea, we get it. We have lots of great books for you in our previous seasons and more coming up next season. Without further ado, Shawnee, welcome to the dark side. Ooh, thank you, Bridget. I'm ready. What up, friends? We have a special treat today. We have our first dark romance author interview of the season with Pepper Winters. Shawnee, how are you? I am so good. I'm so excited to talk to Pepper about her process in dark romance. I am too. I think it's going to be so fun. We're going to get into the taboo. We're going to talk about dark romance, how to craft a hero who's maybe doing bad things, maybe doing a lot of bad things, and how to sort of make them someone that you can still root for as a reader. Obviously, we talked about her mini horses. If you guys have not treated yourself to pictures of Pepper walking mini horses on the beach, please go to her Instagram immediately. Oh, it is so cute. It is the cutest thing in the goddamn planet, guys. I'm obsessed. This interview was super, super fun. Shawnee and Pepper really bonded over being introverts. And I have to say that, Pepper, if you're listening, you were not boring at all. And this was such a delightful chat. Yes. And we got to pop Pepper's Zoom cherry. Yeah, we did. You guys know we like to pop some cherries over here on Romance at a Glance. Pop, 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 pop. So let's get it popping. Romance at a glance. Uh huh. Romance at a glance. What you saying? Romance at a glance. Go ahead, girl. Hello, Pepper. Thank you so much for being here with me and Shawnee. We are super excited to talk to you today because we think that dark romance is such a like fascinating subgenre, and there's just so much to unpack. So we're doing a whole season about it, so that we could really look at like all the different themes. So we have like bully romances and mafia romances and MC romances. And we're just trying to like, just get into all of the different stuff. So we're excited to have you here to chat through it. Awesome. Sounds great. Firstly, though, before we get too dark, I do want to talk quickly about how you take your tiny horses on walks on the beach on leashes, because that might be the (laughs) cutest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Yeah, well, they've been neglected. They haven't been out, well, summer. They do a walk, but yeah, they love it. You just put them in the, we we call it a float, but I think Americans call it a trailer, and uh, throw them in there and go to the beach. And then, yeah, they just take off and. They're just like big dogs, really, aren't they? Big poodles. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> Vegetarian poodles. <laughs> <laughs> so do you live on like a full horse ranch? I'm assuming all your pictures are from your property. They are now, yeah. So I used to ride when I was young. So, well, not all young girls, but a fair few go through a stage of horses. And I went through that stage because my family isn't horsey at all. And so I rode probably for about five or six years when I was younger. And of course, life gets in the way and I moved to Australia and I met my husband and started a business and I never really thought about getting into horses again, but really missed them. And then it was about five years ago, uh, we had the opportunity of buying a piece of land, which was quite small, but we were going to build on. And while we were thinking of building, we thought we'll lease it out to people with horses. So at least, you know, they're eating the grass. And the person I leased it to, she had a spare horse. And now the rest is history. And I just got back into it. And then one horse turned into two, which turned into four, which turned into six. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> but yeah, now we've, we've actually moved to a farm. So we've got 15 hectares, which is 37 acres. And they just run wild. That's awesome. Oh, wow. 
I cannot tell you how that like that dream of going back to like a small family farm has really taken hold in especially in the US right now because everyone's been so trapped at home. And there's been like a couple like big little farm documentary, which if you guys haven't watched it yet, it's excellent. And I myself don't think I'll ever live on a farm. Who knows? But I could have a farm. Shani's like, you don't want to actually Definitely. do the work. I'm like, no, no, no. I want to have like a gentleman's farm where I'm like lording over it. And I have someone <laughs> who's doing the labor for me, obviously. And I'm just reading books on a chase oh, lounge yeah. or something. <laughs> No, I mean, the good thing, like, um, ours isn't a productive farm, so we're on a hill, so it's not really crop cultivation land, it's more just grazing. But if you had your own farm, you could just lease it out and have other people do all the work and you just watch them be your minions. Oh, what? (laughs) Oh my God. Pepper changed my life. I didn't know that was a thing. (laughs) Okay, I'm immediately redoing my house hunting search to expand (laughs) into areas. Everyone's looking for grazing. And I mean, we get a contractor in to bale all our grass and then he pays us for the hay he does. So we literally don't really touch it. We're just it is surprisingly easy. <laughs> Hang out with your horses. So I wanted to talk quickly about the like juxtaposition between like a very like tactile sort of earthy reality of like brushing horses and scooping manure and like being yeah. with them out in the countryside. And then also having this sort of like internal life and computer life where you have to be writing all the time and presumably doing some sort of social media or contacting other people. Like what's that balance like? And is it a better balance now that you have the horses back versus being in like a more city environment? Yeah, definitely. So I was actually born and raised in Hong Kong. So I know what it's like to live in an apartment. My heart goes out to everyone who did have to do lockdown in tiny, tiny shoebox of apartments with no outdoor space. I, oh, it would have been so hard. So I have that in my background. So with regards to having an outdoor life and like say getting dirty, my hands are always filthy, always outside, even if it's snowing and a blizzard and it's horrible. So it, I think it does give a really good balance because when I first started writing, it was like you say, 20 hours a day, you're either you're writing or you're online or networking or you're coming up with new advertising, marketing materials. And I did burn out pretty badly. So about two years ago, I hit a wall pretty hard <laughs> head on. And it took a while to kind of remember just how to be quiet, you know, like no noise in your head and not thinking, oh, I should be doing stuff or feeling guilty for just watching TV. So the horses have really helped in that respect. You know, you just go out and you just watch them and it just reminds you to just calm down. And then, of course, I think your mind is in a better position to write because you've had that balance. Yeah, for sure. And like I find my youngest, I have two little babies. My youngest is obsessed with dogs. I mean, one years old sees a dog on a street and will freak out and starts like howling at it and like jumping up and down and like cry if I take her away. And so all my friends and my husband are like, we got to buy her a dog. I mean, she has to, she just like has to have a dog. And I'm excited because like the companionship, like you said, of of feeling like guilty for just relaxing, which should be like a normal part of our day to not do things. I feel that all the time. It's like the most important part of the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think having a pet to like hang out with, because then you're like, oh, but I'm not doing nothing. I'm cuddling this puppy that needs love. So exactly. obviously exactly. that's productive. Yeah. You're keeping it alive and giving it the love it needs. Exactly. <laughs> it's interesting because I did quarantine with like both of those things. I stayed with my parents for like eight months and they live like on an acre of land and they don't have horses, but they have chickens and the neighbors have horses. And it's really weird because it's an unincorporated road in the middle of a city. 
So basically, imagine like like a regular city where one road people were like, nah, we want to have our trailers and horses and peacocks and all this stuff. We're not <laughs> this, part of you guys. <laughs> we're not part of this on this one long road. It's actually pretty funny. And then when I came back to LA, I went into a studio apartment with my partner, like a one, just one room. And I was like, oof. This is not the business. It's not the business. No, oh no. I told Shawnee, I was like, you can move into the spare room in my house, Shawnee. I was like, we got a backyard. I was so close. I was this close. <laughs> but you guys aren't in lockdown at the moment, hey? Like, oh, we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We can't get it together over here. <laughs> no. LA's numbers were real, real bad in January. They've come down like significantly since then, which is good. But yeah, it's still. Dining like outside just reopened. Okay. It's honestly amazing. Like when you think, I mean, a year ago today, we pretty much went into our lockdown. We were only in lockdown a month. It doesn't sound bad compared to you guys. But it's amazing how life has changed in that year. Hey, you just kept holding out hope that it would one day be normal. And who knows when it's going to be normal. Yeah, we were hoping to start doing some of these interviews like in person and at like some sort of signing and do like a fun giveaways and meet people. Like 2022, 2022 is our year. Yeah, we literally talked about that. 2019, we're like, yeah, we're going on signings. We're gonna do all this, and then it was like, shut it down. (laughs) No. Yes, you will do no things. So the one thing we've talked a bit about in Dark Romance so far in our season is that the permission a taboo subject gives you to like explore in your mind something that you would never consider or accept in real life. Or want to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and me and Shawnee are pretty crazy sometimes. And I feel like our temptation would be to go like way too far <laughs> in all the regards. <laughs> and I'm wondering how you balance like the darkness with the fact that it is a romance. Yes. I mean, there I delete quite a lot. Um, sometimes I'll delete an entire book. I'm like, no, that's just, that's not allowed. As we're getting more online, you obviously see more people having opinions and I don't find, which is a, a good thing. Everyone can have a voice, but it also does make it quite tricky with the taboo sort of subjects because it is taboo and it is going to raise a lot of issues. So you walk such a thin, thin line on having it cancelled and banned versus being okay in mainstream. So yeah, that's always kind of in your back of your mind. So sometimes I'll write a scene, I'll be like, oh, that's gross. I'll be like, it's excellent. Oh, yeah. Delete, delete. Can't have that. <laughs> so here's what we suggest immediately is we would like access to the deleted scenes because <laughs> it feels files. like that's what we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should be a special membership just for the people who want to go darker than dark yeah, and yeah. <laughs> not accessible to the full book. It's not R18. It's, it would have to be a different rating. R6 maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are curious we're just want to know there you go that's a good one <laughs> it's interesting that you said like you know you have to be careful so you don't get canceled and when Bridget and I came into this like romance community uh, somebody said to me like a dm like it's there's a lot of drama and I was like really oh like I don't know what you're talking about and then subsequently we've seen a lot of drama online yeah <laughs> but with dark romance I feel like the things that you would get canceled for are okay and I'm kind of like, what can't you put in dark romance though? Like that will get you canceled. Like I think everything goes in dark romance. Yeah. Like yeah, you know, like once you put that title on. Again, none of this is acceptable in real life. We all know that. But you know, a lot of people have done like siblings and things like that. I haven't gone in that route, and I'd never do bestiality or 
like that because that's definitely would get you banned from say Amazon and, and things like that and that wouldn't be very fun to write <laughs> let's be fair let's face it but yeah you're right everything else like the bigger age gaps obviously legal age gaps and the violence between a couple who are still figuring out how to be strong and be powerful and and, and it is a fine line but I think what I love about dark romance is it takes a normal say woman who obviously gets kidnapped or whatever and it seems like she's the victim, but I always try and make it that she's the powerful one and she's the one that grows and she's the one that teaches this monster of a man to be normal or be normal within their normal, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's, there's quite a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> Does the hero always have to have redemption for you? I think so. But redemption can come in such a tiny sliver of redemption if he's completely black sold you know so it could just be a, a kind word that is just completely unexpected and then that's enough redemption for me if it's a main character he definitely has to put his love interest first 100 in my opinion at my core i'm still a very old-fashioned romance reader like julia quinn i love all the regency romance stuff nalini singh i love all the the her shapeshifter men who are all really growly but they're all soft-hearted inside so at, at my core i'm still you know traditional i suppose mm-hmm yeah, we've read a couple and they keep having a heart of gold. And Shawnee's like, I want the one who doesn't, who is one of these people going to have no heart of gold or like only a heart of gold, only for that one person who's their person and everyone else. They're still terrible too. They're terrible. Yeah, yeah, Ruthless. Yeah. <laughs> the one person yeah. gets them. <laughs> well, the one I'm writing at the moment, um, Fable of Happiness, he's kind of like that. You can, he's already redeemed in a way. I don't want to give away too much, but he is very tricky. He's not someone you want to have in your circle of friends, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're like, he's very tricky. And I'm like, ooh. He's tricky. Interesting. I like, it. I like a tricky individual. You know what's funny? In real life, I have this friend who's just a full-blown narcissist, right? And I know it, right? But there's some things in life that full-blown narcissists are amazing at and are like so good for. And like, you should always have one in your back pocket for... <laughs> Or when you just need some stuff to happen and someone to do it who doesn't give a fuck about anything. <laughs> it is a talent. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. When you're writing these series, do you have a plan? If you have like a multiple series arc already, do you kind of know like, okay, this character, this character get together in book two, this character, this character, book three. So I have to drop some crumbs or do you just go for it and see what happens? I say I'm a plotter. My plot changes almost daily. So I'm a real character driven writer. So I'll think, right, today I'm going to write XYZ. And then I might write XY, but then Z completely changes, which then changes the plot for the next day. So I have probably a 20, I've got, where is it? <laughs> I can't bother getting it. It's a tablet. And basically it's the remarkable tablet. So it's the, uh, the paper mm. one. And I've got like 22 pages of plot on that. So then like say that follows the whole story arc. So I'm about to embark on the fables, which is a nine character world. Obviously each book will look after a different character, but you, you have to like say put those crumbs in about this character who might not get his book for seven books, but he, his story is relevant to this book as well. So and the indebted series, I mean that was a six and a half book series that came to me from work, walking around Waddesdon Manor in Buckinghamshire when I was there in England on a signing. And uh, that whole book just unfurled in my head straight away. So I knew it was going to be book two when certain things would happen and book three when certain revelations would happen and who would die a miserable death. 
So, <laughs> so no, it is fun to have a concept, but it is equally fun for the character to say, no, I don't want that. We're going to do this. I really want one of those remarkable tablets. The advertising <laughs> totally got me. And I... Yeah brilliant i really want one i'm excited that you like yours uh, i've had mine two years and uh honestly i love it it's just nice that it's just a notepad but it's all saved to your cloud uh, you got it on your phone you got it on your laptop and you can't surf the internet or anything you can't be like oh i'm just gonna look on here it's like no you're actually you're working or you're not so <laughs> i need that oh it's like an add dream Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's like a notebook, but instead of me running out of pages, eventually I can never go back and find things. You just, it's just all, it's all a lie. It's all nice and filed. Cause yeah, I had like 50 notebooks at one point. I was like, no, this is just getting out of control. (laughs) I think I had like an early version of this that I was like given in its child period and you, you write on it, but then you had to like scan it and it had to up like upload it to a thing. And I was like, I can't do that. By the time I do that, it's <laughs> it's too involved, yeah. It's gotta be easy, otherwise you don't use it. It's got yes, for sure. I have a question about sex. Okay. Uh oh. So Rich and I always talk about like the timing of sex in a book, right? How soon is too soon, how long is too long, how much sex. We don't read anymore any closed door sex scenes either. But my question to you is like, when you're putting sex in your books, what are you trying to accomplish with your characters and how much sex is too much sex? And do you ever edit out sex? Well, funny enough, I hate writing sex scenes. I find them really exhausting because you've got to remember where the arms are, what the hands are doing. It's just like a juggling act of body parts. But when it comes to sex for me, I write it as a weapon for the man, especially if it's dark romance, it's a weapon for a man and it's a power tool for the girl. That's kind of how I don't do it that deliberately. But when I step back and look, that's kind of my MO. So in terms of how soon is too soon, I mean, Ren and Della, I don't know if you read that it's a coming of age story. They don't get physically intimate till probably about 250,000 words in, which is the second book towards the middle of the second book. So that's a long time to wait. (laughs) (laughs) But then with Fable of Happiness, it's quite quick because it's a weapon that's used against a heroine at that point. So I don't really think, oh, I'm only 10 pages in, I can't do something sexual here, or you know, I'm 100 pages in, I should do something sexual. If it works with the storyline, I'll do it. And I do believe that sex scenes can be too long, and I'm probably a bit guilty of that sometimes. <laughs> you know what? We interviewed Katie Robert, and she said that she uses little dolls so that she doesn't forget what positions they're in. Going on? So she can visualize like whose arms. She does a lot of like menage as well and like multiple partners. So she'll like set them all up so then she can like look over and be like, oh, okay, his head is by her. Okay. <laughs> and then she remembers her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was... At least his dolls are not real person. She's like, right, do this. Yeah, choreographing. Okay, right. <laughs> Calls her husband in and is like, come on, we got to try this out real fast. <laughs> a little research. <laughs> is it what Beverly Jenkins told us when she like doesn't know what to do? She's like ask her husband she's like let's do a little research (laughs) yeah she said luckily my husband loves research (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome I think it's a really tricky balance like having someone who's not does something bad in general like oh they're a mafia don they kill people it's like whatever I can get over that as a reader that's not that doesn't matter I mean it matters don't kill people in real life but in a book I'm like meh But it's harder, I think, when there's like physical violence or something against the main MC, the other main MC. So how do you come back from that or write that so that as a reader, I'm willing to root for that character and not be like, you should go die in a ditch because I don't like you. Yeah, I think probably the key is to show maybe some remorse 
like they're still doing it and they're not going to stop but maybe when they first start doing it they're like yeah you know I'm committed to this but maybe by the end of the book or the, the series or whatever they've evolved enough that they're feeling the regret and the growth and then obviously it would eventually hopefully stop completely I do definitely think there has to be an internal war for the MC not to be thoroughly enjoying hurting the other MC for that connection for the reader mm-hmm. like Jethro from the Indebted series everyone hated him in the first book which is exactly what you were supposed to do but then by the third book when it came to like why he did what he did and then he started fighting what he was trained to do basically hopefully enough people were then rooting for him and saw he was redeeming himself yeah I think it's really interesting I was just reading the new A uh, Court of Thorns and Roses book which is why I'm thinking of it because she does it from different points of view you also aren't in that character's point of view yet because they're like a side character at that point. And so then once you're in their point of view, it can like shape how you as the reader see whatever happened in past books. And backstory, I think, is a big play in that. Like if they have a bad backstory, but they're just being an absolute twat at the moment, you can sort of forgive it if they've got a good sob backstory. (laughs) I'm curious as to how you decided to write dark romance. So like every author has like their kind of like their author story, how you got into it. And normally I don't ask this question, but I'm actually very curious because I feel like dark romance is something that takes a little bit of guts to jump into. And so I'm curious as to like how you made that transition. Were you working in some other field entirely, then decided to do this and how that came about? I've kind of been writing all my life. Like I went to school in Hong Kong and then I was homeschooled. And my favorite part of lessons was creative writing. And, you know, I can't really remember what I'd write about, but writing was definitely my favorite topic. But I always gravitated towards the darker books. Like I think I was about eight when I stumbled upon a Danielle Steele book and it, the heroine had been raped and had an unwanted pregnancy I was like oh my god what is this so um, that was like my initiation into like romance books so kind of that I think right from the beginning I had probably a anything goes kind of thought and then when almost eight years ago now 2013 yeah Q from Monsters in the Dark Tears of Tess which was the first release I had he just popped into my head out of nowhere and I know he comes across as a monster to begin with but because of his backstory, which of course you don't know until the very end, I was comfortable writing the dark romance because to me it was romance. To me, he was hiding a lot of himself behind darkness, but and at the heart, he wasn't such a dark guy. So I think that's probably what gave me the guts, I guess. Like I didn't feel like I was writing anything too taboo, if that makes sense. It was just a love story. Different, but still a love story. So I, maybe I was a bit naive when I pressed publish thinking, oh, everyone will see how it how I meant to write it and then some people were like this is the darkest thing I've ever written and and then some people were like ah it's tame so everyone's got their yeah. you know I always yeah. love when I see those reviews where like you have all these one stars and they're like this book is fucked up and you're like "Ooh, that's a auto buy for me what you got in <laughs> yeah. there and then you have people who are like I don't think they went far enough in this book yeah <laughs> completely subjective so just like a random thing you just said that you read like when you ate a Danielle Steele yeah, and it was actually, I remember the title, it was called The Gift, and it was in England, and the supermarket, the t- tubs of margarine, there would be a paperback stuff on top of it, and I snuck it from the shopping bag, and I read it. <laughs> okay, so I was in my middle school library, and I found The Gift by Daniel Steele, and that was my very first like introduction into it. And there you go. in my mind, I was like, I swear it was called The Gift, but I just couldn't remember. So when you said that, I was like, wait, what's it called? Because that was the first book where I was like, 
I am intrigued. I must read exactly. more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. It was the same person. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that is cool. <laughs> My dad reads Anne Rice. And so there was an Anne Rice book oh, on wow. our bookshelf. And I was like, what is happening? I am intrigued. Seriously? What is going What are these lusty wrong feelings? <laughs> Wait, what book did your dad have? I want to know which Yeah, yeah. That he all of them. So we had like all of the Vampire Lestat, like that whole series. And then also the one I read first was the, I forget the title, but it's about a ghost in New Orleans and she moves into this old house and then the ghost like has sex with her. And I just remember being like, what is going on? This book is ah, look that one up. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I should be reading this at 12 or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one thing on our podcast that has been a little bit tricky for this season is that a lot of dark romances, especially indie authors don't have audiobooks, and Shawnee only reads audiobooks. And we noticed that obviously you, we chose one of your books because there's an audio book, but also like you seem to have some traditionally published books, some indie books, but you have a lot of audio books. How do you like go about that? Did you always have them? Like, what was your process on that? So obviously the years just go together. It was in Melbourne probably four or five years ago at a signing and there was a topic of audiobooks came up and I wasn't into it because I don't like audiobooks. I read quite quick and audiobooks to me are too slow, even at like max speed. So I'm like, okay, that's right. So it wasn't like coming from my point of view, I was like, who is reading or listening to these things? And then I put up an audition on Audio Audible, ACX, and Will Watt, who is Jethro in the Indebted series, he contacted me and he did an audition. I was like, ah, actually it's not bad. Cringeworthy listening to someone, a complete stranger, reading my filthy words. <laughs> my cheeks were on fire. But he he did a really good job. And then once I put that series out, I also hired through another audio company to do Monsters in the Dark. And then you're right, I sold a couple of books to Hachette and they they were in charge of the audiobooks. So I actually think The Ruin and Rule and Sin and Suffer are the only audiobooks I have that is read by one narrator. I think she's a female. All my rest are du duet. So it's read how I would want it. I want the guys to be the guys and the girls to be the girls. The more I've done, the more I try and have the audio release at the same time as the ebook because it's such a big market now and you don't want to penalize the listeners as well as the readers. So I really like that because a book will come out and Bridget will have it and then I have to I wait. For yeah. And for me, the reason why, I mean, I used to be a very voracious like reader of books and very tangible. And then over the years, my eyes don't track well for me to, to be able to read. And so it's just become that audio is the only way I can access, you know, these books. And so I love when they come out at the same time, because then I don't feel left behind or everybody's talking about it. And then I, and I'm like, well, okay, I'm waiting. <laughs> still waiting. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, The Fable of Happiness, I've got the first book already in production. So that will be done, he said, start of March, so next week. And so then that will be locked and loaded. Because ACX, they make it tricky because they have 10 to 20 working days to check the audio file. So even if you release the ebook and your audio is ready to go, the audio can still be three weeks away. So you do have to be months ahead, really. It's a juggling act, but I think it's worth it because like you say, then you're not waiting. <laughs> Yeah, we had a ton of recommendations. I mean, as I'm sure you're aware, since you have readers in your own genre, very voracious group of readers in dark romance. I mean, yeah, they're, they're great. 
everyone who passionate. reads them. Yeah, passionate. Like we'll read back catalogs of if they love an author, they'll read it all. And we got, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of recommendations and we looked through them all. And then we like picked our short list of like maybe 50 books or so. And unfortunately, like 20 of them didn't have audiobooks. And oh, so, yeah, we couldn't select them for the podcast. I, of course, have kept them on my little backlist for when I have a moment to quickly skim through because some of them sounded crazy. And I was like, well, obviously, I would like to read about one man who captures and tortures another man and then falls in love with him while torturing him because that sounds cool. But I wonder, like, as you've built your fan base, do you find that your dark romance versus your sort of more new adult or I don't know what you would consider that? Is that, I guess it's new adult books. Those fans are different. Do you find there's a lot of crossover? I find there's a lot of crossover. Yes. Like my like most passionate fans, the ones that I always see online and who I recognize their names and basically know their dresses off by heart at this point, they will read any genre that I write, which I'm obviously very, very privileged and honored to, to have. And I think even like, say the people who found me through Ren and Della and The Boy in His Ribbon, that is more of a Nicholas Sparks kind of readership. So I, I didn't, I really wanted the covers to be different. I didn't want to come out and say, don't read this if you don't like tragedy, but at the same time say, this isn't a typical romance. And uh, quite a lot of people did come across because I think people read dark romance, maybe not for the gore and the violence and the the darkness, but the butterflies and the pain that you get while reading it. And that can come in all forms, not just dark romance. So yeah, I do think that I do have quite a lot of crossover, which is cool. How do you decide if you're going to like pitch a book to be like a more traditionally published versus publishing yourself? I haven't, if I'm honest, I've never pitched. I've been very, very lucky. When I first released Destroyed, which was my third book, Back in March 2014, I think, I got a Facebook message from Hachette saying, hey, we'd like to publish you. And I actually thought it was spam because I was like, there's no way anyone wants to publish me. Who am I? Anyway, so I unclicked it from spam and I sat on it for a while and I thought, oh, maybe I should email, which was luckily I did because they were absolutely amazing. And to have the experience of working with a traditional house was incredible. And then because that deal came through, I didn't feel comfortable negotiating myself because again, I was like, well, who am I? So I got an agent, Trident Media, and they did all that for me and they handled my foreign. But in terms of pitching a book to another traditional house, I haven't purely because the way I work, it's taken me a while to admit this to myself, but I don't like working for other people. (laughs) I like to think, you know what, this book's not working for me. I'm going to write something else. And I like being able to publish the minute I finish and not have to write a book and not publish it for two years. So that, I'm not saying I'll never do another traditional, but at this point, I'm more than happy just ticking along. Yeah. I think the instant gratification of like, that's what I love about this. Like we'll record this episode and it'll be live within two weeks. And then we can hear what people think about it and what your fans think about it. And like, I think if I recorded this and then a year later, I was supposed to talk about it. I'd be like, well, what did we talk about? <laughs> what's the book? About? If I wrote a book, I'd be like, what's that book about? I've already written four other books. I don't know what that book is about. <laughs> Yeah. And I was really grateful for the opportunity and the team were amazing. I mean, I'm still in touch with everyone and and very grateful, but yeah, um, I'm happy just in my messy dark world. (laughs) Do you get a lot of pressure from your fans to write more books faster? Because I have a time or two pressured an author that I enjoyed and said, (laughs) yeah, this book is great. So what are you doing on vacation? Because what you should be doing is buckling down. No, I had quite a lot of messages like that saying, no playing with the horses. You should be inside (laughs) on your laptop. (laughs) I definitely feel that not wanting to work for other people and working on your own timeline. And I think it's taken a lot of, not self-reflection or whatever, but 
admittance to myself to say, you know, I mean, you want to please everyone. You want to say, yes, I'll do that. Yes, I would love to be part of this collab. And yes, I'd love to co-write with you. And it's really hard to say no, especially when the invitations are coming from superstars and people who I look up to and people who I, I would genuinely love to work with. But my mind just doesn't let me. My, my crazy, convoluted, creative process, I delete so much and I change my mind so much that I would literally drive someone else up the wall including a publisher or a co-writer, or I really have to feel the book before I can write it, if that makes sense. I just probably curtailed a lot of opportunities, but you know, that's how my brain works. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be a deterrent to try and force it though. We were talking with May Archer and Lucy Lennox who have written a couple books together now. And they're like, we each co-wrote a book in the past and it was fine. But like, this is the first time we met someone where it was just gelled and it was like, bam, bam, bam. We wrote these books so fast. And I think unless you have that partnership and that like synchronicity, it's just like, why were you going to like push a rock up the hill when you could have in the same time written like three books on your own because you're trying to force anything. So, yeah, because I mean, yes, this is a business and yes, this is my, my, my business, my company, I suppose, but it's still a creative process yeah. and I can't force it, if that makes sense. I'd love to. I'd love to be able to, for someone to say, write this book, hear your characters, this is the world. And I'd love to be able to say, right, yep, great. I can't. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's an impossibility for me, unfortunately. I tried to write a script a time or two with other people. And a few of these times I realized I was like, I had a very hard time writing because some people like the cliches of things and they want to use the cliches. And my brain is just so anti-cliche. And I had someone say to me like, oh, you got to do this thing because it's it, it's part of the genre. And I was like, but it doesn't work. And I re- after that, I was like, this is, I don't know. <laughs> I might have to write on my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a tricky one because, I mean, like say, you don't want to miss out on the opportunity of working with great people. But at the same time, if, if your creative process is just singular, then, then hey, that's what works. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that, uh, well, Bridget and I, we come from like a video production background. And sometimes you film something and you like the story actually comes when you're editing, when you're in like the post-production of it. Have you ever had like a book that you wrote turn into like a totally different story when you're trying to, when you're going back down and editing it and going through it? Sometimes, normally if that happens, I'll actually just scrap the whole thing. Obviously you can't with videoing, videoing you've already got all your content. But with a book, if that happens quite early on, I know that my mind is either checked out. Because like you say, with when we were talking before saying, oh, you know, you write something and then four years later, you've got to promote it kind of thing. If I'll have had a really good idea for a plot, like this happened for The Body Painter, I got the plot about five years ago and I should have written it then and there and I didn't because I had other commitments. And by the time I wrote it, it had gone. So I really struggled. And then when my mind checked out, that's when I actually dropped it and I wrote Boy in His Ribbon. And I wrote that in record speed because that was where the story was leading. So yeah, I understand that it's very different from having video content and editing, but yeah, it does happen. How many books do you, do you have like a a goal you try to aim for every year? Like I want to write two books a year, four books a year, whatever. I used to, I used to, when it was really, like I say, burning the candle at both ends. I was putting out six, six books a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to say that's too many. (laughs) Too many. It was. It's not sustainable. And my mind and my body were like, no, you're having a break now. Fourth break. And then when I kind of remembered how to breathe and be able to look outside and not be in my head kind of thing, I think I put out three books two years ago, but then last year. So the start of COVID basically February, 2020, 
is when I first released the first book in the Goddess Isles series. And I didn't think it was going to do very well at all because obviously the world was going to hell in a handbasket, cliche. <laughs> and then I had already committed. I already had all the books written pretty much. So I had a book released every month. So I had five books done and I had two novelists. So that year I had seven books. And this year I'm probably going to have four possibly. Do you have like a team behind you now who helps you with the other stuff so that you can focus on the creative stuff? No, I have got to that point. Especially, be honest, I suck at delegating. I really suck at delegating. <laughs> it's really hard to do. It's really, really hard. So you'd think after eight years, I would have found someone who I was happy to boss around, but I haven't. <laughs> I feel too guilty. But I am in the process of talking to a girl who seems really, really lovely and is willing to push me to hand over little tiny jobs. So fingers crossed, because it would be lovely to have someone to lean on and, and be able to be more present for for my readers because I'm not online something had to give and that was you know social media pretty much otherwise I would be writing so. yeah I mean I think they would probably rather have your books than Instagram comments hopefully <laughs> yeah well Instagram I mean I'm very boy on Instagram you go there for horses and rabbits that's it that's I mean <laughs> I am into it I want a tiny horse and a tiny rabbit <laughs> I was like, Bridget, focus. She's like, there's there's tiny rabbits. And then Shani I was like, Shani, I'm researching Pepper's life. This is research. Uh, it's like she's one dimensional she's animals or books and that's it i also loved new zealand when i was visiting like 10 years ago now and the whole time i had my head out the window going sheep there's just look at the green hills and my friend was like get in the car and i was like look at them all everywhere i think there's a like a time in your life and everybody's life where they like really internalize that they can't do it all and you make that switch because before that, you're in the grind and the hustle. And it's weird because my whole life, people use the term hustle like it's like a positive. Yeah, exactly. And it was not a positive. It was just now I'm doing a whole lot of things, like half as good as I could you know, do. And then I'm burnt out and I have no time for people and I'm missing appointments and, you know, and I can't focus. And so I think that you get almost like a new life. The, like, the minute you're like, you know what? All this other stuff's got to go. This is what I'm going to focus on. It, it feels like a breath. Just like this big sigh is like released from your body and you, you're only obligated to the things that you actually want to be obligated to. And I think there's a shift. There has to be, when you made that decision, there had to be a shift in your work. There had to be a shift in your voice. There had to be, because I feel like that comes from a very deep, like a, a knowing of yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, like you say, knowing of yourself, I think as you get older, you, you start to learn and appreciate your own quirks and your own faults and your own positives and and like you say, up until recently, I think a lot of people, and myself included, were like, the harder you work and the more you work, it's an accolade. It's, you know, you can pat yourself on your back and think, oh, I'm such a hard worker. I, you know, like you say, it's a good thing. But it's not really because you don't have balance of life, you know, and that's the key is balance of life and being happy. So, yeah, you're very right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My big goal after having children was to learn how to say no to people for work. Because I'm very good at saying no to like social things I don't want to do or like, things like that. But like in a work, especially because I moved to LA and LA is all about the hustle. It's all about, yeah, especially because there's this like thing where it's like, if you don't, it all doesn't happen right away. It's like never going to happen, which is like fundamentally not true. I mean, there's tons of stories of people who work for 10, 20 years. And then all of a sudden they've been working steadily and then they have a big break in some way or whatever. 
And it was funny because after I had kids, it's like, well, first of all, you were like pregnant. You had to say no to some stuff. Like there was a shoot in the desert I really wanted to do, but it's like 125 degrees outside. And I was like, well, I can't just be outside every day pregnant. Like I'm going to die or the baby's going to tell me bad's going to happen. It's unhealthy. So I had to say no. And I was like, oh, I feel good about this. And so slowly I've been working on it. And I have to say that it has a lot like a loud space to like start this podcast and do this podcast because I wasn't saying yes to all these other things. And the delegation thing is so funny that you just said that it's so hard because Shawnee and I literally just started delegating the editing of the podcast this season. And as Shawnee said, Mercury was in retrograde and we had some growing pains and hopefully it's all sorted now. But it's such a hard thing because in my mind, I'm like, well, I could just do it real quick. That's like my mentality is like, I could just do it. I could just learn it. I could just do everything. And it's nice to hear that I'm not the only one who has this feeling. Yeah. Well, you have to tell me how you figured out how to do that. I mean, obviously over the years, I've worked with tour companies who I'm very grateful for and they would handle my blog tours and the, the art giveaways and things. But I never really asked them to be my assistant, if you will. So someone who I can say, like you say, oh, can you edit this audio file? Because I've got Jinx Fantasy. I've got the audio file for that to listen to. That's three hours, even at 200% increased audio. So that's three hours. I'm like, okay, well, I'll do that tonight at eight o'clock. And then I'll write. And, you know, if I delegated that, (laughs) I wouldn't do. (laughs) It's hard because like when you delegate something, you want another you. You don't want just somebody, you want another you. So it's like, I just delegated the audio for our, our podcast to someone else, but I'm so meticulous when I edit so that our conversation is seamless. And so when somebody else edited it, it was very stagnant in nature. And I was like, no, <laughs> I know. And I was like, send me the files right away. <laughs> Gotta redo it, redo it, yeah. And Bridget's like, Shawnee, the goal is for someone else to edit, give them notes so that they could go fix the notes and grow and learn. <laughs> I also did say, if it's not helping, let's get a refund and let's find someone else. I said, if it's not the right fit, that's totally fine. Let's go find someone who is the right fit. She did. She said that to me. She was like, Shawnee, if it ain't working, let's go. But the thing is, it's like, I really want it to work, but I'm also having a really hard time letting go. It's a growing moment, Pepper. It's a growing moment. <laughs> and I also think in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, what happens if I find that awesome, perfect person and I learn to delegate and they become a mini me? And then they leave or they get another job or, and then you're back to having everything and you've forgotten how to do it. That's another fear. (laughs) Well, if that person is a mini me, they will leave you a detailed note with all the logins and all the things you need to know. Cause I know when I've done that at, at past jobs, I leave like an anthology book of like every single definition and item that you could ever possibly need to know that I work like a binder full of stuff. So they will help, (laughs) they'll help you find their own replacement. They could hire their own replacement, you know, teach them, train yeah. them. Or you just keep paying them more money and be like, please, please don't leave me. True. Please don't ever yeah, leave exactly. me. <laughs> don't leave me. Don't leave me. <laughs> Pepper, what are you reading right now? Are you reading any good books that you'd like to recommend to the peeps? Yes. The Poppy War have just started. I literally just started, so I can't tell you. I want to read that so bad. That cover is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I know nothing about it. I read it just popped up saying good romance, uh, fantasy. And I'm on a fantasy kick. I love fantasy. So, And I've just finished, well, I'm halfway through Crescent City by Sarah J. Nice. My three-year-old bought 
Crescent City on my Kindle because she was playing around with it. And I didn't realize it was connected to the internet. And then like a month later, I was looking through to find a book that I was going to read. And I was like, Crescent City, why is that? Maybe I downloaded a sample at some point. And I was like, oh no, I've purchased it. Okay. My child, she's been purchasing books. Okay. Better review. (laughs) Take off the internet when she's playing. (laughs) Good job she didn't buy like a whole ton of, because I I was just reading an article this morning that some of those child games that you have to buy apps in store, someone racked up a two and a half thousand pound bill or something, their eight-year-old kid or something. I was like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she doesn't get a lot of screen time because she's three, but like none of her things are connected to a purchasing thing that has a credit card. So even if she clicked buy, it would just be like, no, (laughs) no. So that's $2,000 though. Like that kid's grounded for life. (laughs) Oh, seriously, seriously. That would have been a major butt whooping in my house. I would not be able to sit down for like a week. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Pepper, well, I'm curious, and Bridget and I are always curious. So you've been with your partner for like 15 years or more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're always curious to know what any advice that you would give for other people for their happily ever after, for making a relationship really work and thrive. Good question. I think I probably struck gold, to be honest. I was more than happy to be a spinster with many, many animals. I would probably have had a zoo by now. My poor husband didn't want to have any animals and he's now got seven. So (laughs) I think maybe that's the key compromise on his end. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's he's, he's lovely. Um, I think we're very similar, but we're different enough that we complement each other as well. So, I mean, and of course, we're like any other couple, we'll have tiffs, we'll have arguments, we'll get annoyed. But uh, we don't let it get off. We don't let it snowball. The longest we've ever been in a text together is a day. That was a day too long. And I think the key is being able to say, yes, I was wrong, even though it's really hard sometimes. And be able to apologize and genuinely apologize. Because sometimes, like, yeah, I'm sorry, it doesn't count. So yeah, I think definitely not holding grudges, letting things stay in the past and um, just being best friends, I think. I think that's probably the, the main thing. Well, Pepper, thank you so much for being here today. We are going to end on that excellent romance advice. And if you guys want to catch more of our interview, deleted scenes from this, you can go to patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance and check it all out. Thanks for hanging in with us, romance readers. Head over to Instagram to continue chatting with us. We're super friendly. We want to cackle with you. We want to know what your favorite sex scene was. And we need more book recommendations. If you want to read along with us, go to our website, romanceataglance.com, to see what we're reading next. And we'll see you next podcast.